This is the One Soldier Podcast, episode 17, with me, Russell Hillier. In the early 1990s, Canadian soldiers were sent to the former Yugoslavia on a peacekeeping mission, which was anything but peaceful. Ethnic cleansing, summary executions, and mass graves were common throughout Bosnia and Croatia. Entire towns and villages were destroyed by the warring factions. Then, in September 1993, Canadian soldiers found themselves in a place called the Madak Pocket, where they fought a pitched battle with Croatian forces. An estimated 50 Croatian soldiers were killed in Canada's largest battle fought in the decades between Korea and the Afghanistan War. And yet, not much has been written about the Madak Pocket because the government covered it up for political purposes. For nearly a decade, the soldiers who were there were branded as liars whenever they spoke about it. On today's podcast, I'm talking to William Ray, a Canadian soldier who was on the front lines at Madak. He's going to give a no-holds-barred account of the mission, the battle, and the cover-up. William joined me from his home in Nova Scotia, and we're going to start our conversation right now. William Ray, welcome to the podcast. Really, really happy to have you on. Really excited to talk to you. It's, uh, I've been wanting to do a podcast episode on the Medak Pocket for quite some time. One of the reasons uh, that I, I've been interested in this topic is because the Battle of the Medak Pocket, it's sort of this, it's almost like a legendary military event in Canada because on the one hand, it's the single largest engagement of Canadian troops in the decades between Korea and Afghanistan. And yet on the other hand, if you, if you look outside of military circles, it's, it's hardly even known about, like, I mean, uh, it's not in the textbooks. It's not really taught about in school all that much. There's been no movies about it or, or not many books written about it either, but you were there and you did write about it and you shared your experience of the Medak yeah. pocket. And it's a great read. I read the article. What made you sort of want to tell this story or, or, or share your experiences from the front lines of, of this battle, of this mission? Well, I mean, uh, it was, I think it was the 25th anniversary uh, that year or something like that. So uh, I had written down sort of a rough version of that. It's sort of a yeah, it's a kind of a stream of consciousness, just a few yeah. little flashes of the thing. And, you know, like you say, I mean, um, literally uh, what happened, our, our part of the operation was suppressed by the Canadian government because Somalia was hitting the papers at that time. And uh, the associate minister of defense at the time, he wanted it completely, uh, uh, yeah, nobody to talk about it. So, yeah, unfortunately, you know, it was, uh, it was a very well-executed operation. We absolutely achieved our aims for, for that uh, time. And, yeah, I felt that, um, yeah, the story had never been told, so I thought I'd give it a shot. Yeah, well, you did a great job of it. Uh, and I, I know it's, you can only tell so much when, when it's uh, in the form of uh, a news article. Mm-hmm. I, I sort of got the impression that maybe that's just like a really small slice of of uh of what actually it was meant to be little flashes i tried to pick a a couple of incidents you know through the thing and yeah just give you a little flash kind of gonzo journalism style yeah right 
what one thing that I, I like I, I hope that we can get into maybe a bit more detail like why why it was covered up to some degree but let, let's go back to the beginning uh, I'm talking to you from uh, your home in Nova Scotia right now yeah did, you were a pretty young guy when you enlisted right did you did you sort of join oh, right out of high school in Nova Scotia or, or how did no you not at all I'm from Alberta originally so I joined the reserve when I was in high school actually um, it was kind of the family business. So uh, my father had served in my family, uh, had a long history of uh, serving with the Canadian military. On my mom's side, one of her ancestors is uh, uh, Sam Steele there. Yeah. Brigadier General Sir Sam Steele. Big, uh, so, big history, historical figure in Alberta and Canada. Sure. So, yeah, it was kind of the family business and it was uh, something I was attracted to anyway. And uh, yeah, so I got in. I was just a kid, really. <laughs> yeah. What what regiment was that that you joined? Uh, with 20th the Field in Edmonton, Alberta. Uh, the uh, 6-1 Battery, 20th Field. There's a battery in Edmonton and a battery in Red Deer there. Right on. With the with the reserves uh, during the, the Afghan mission, I know it was always... Um, like people were sort of fighting to get onto that mission from the reserves. Was that the same? Was that your experience as well uh, during the, the Bosnian mission? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, the system is kind of designed, right? That, uh, I mean, the reg force regiments are only ever at, you know, bloody 50, 60%. Back in the eighties, they were at about 40% strength. So when you actually transition into operations, you do need those extra bodies. Um, in my case, yeah, there was a lot of competition because it was a limited. I mean, Afghanistan, we're sending over like, you know, three, four, five thousand guys in a chomp there. Um, I think right. at the height in Boston, we'd have about 2,500. And uh, you could cheat a bit too because on those peacekeeping missions, you don't have armor, you don't have artillery deployed in its organic form. So you can use them as uh, infantry, basically. Right. So yeah, there was, uh, there was a fair amount, I suppose, sure. When, when, you, when you got the call to go to the former Yugoslavia, so this is the early 1990s, the, the country is breaking apart. You've got, uh, well, Slovenia, from everything I read, sort of made a clean break, but definitely Croatia and Bosnia were the sort of like the epicenter of what became a really brutal and savage civil war. Mm -hmm. were, were you guys expecting to see the, the atrocities and the, like the ethnic cleansing that, that was occurring there? Or did you know what you were walking into when you got sent on that mission? Well, I'd say yes and no. I mean, I think, you know, there was, uh, we were already in the age of the 24-hour news cycle. So I think there was quite a bit of, um, uh, you know, like awareness on our part of what it would look like. Now, in terms of what was happening, no, because, you know, we were fed this narrative in the West that there's one bad guy, that's the Serbs, and everybody else is just, you know, trying to do their thing. And, of course, arriving there, I would say that was the biggest um, uh, disjoint between what we understood to be true and what was true on the ground. Because when we got on the ground, we actually ended up defending a Serbian area against the Croatians. Right. 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 And it became very apparent that there was a whole lot going on when we hit the ground. I mean, we had... Uh, 
guys were running into Arab fighters in the middle of Bosnia. You had really? uh, some part of the the Americans were were shipping in these uh, ex Mujahideen fighters at some point. It was far more complex than, yeah. than you know. Certainly, our impression going in was, well, you got the bad guy here, the Serbs, and then everybody else. And that was not the case. That that's fascinating to me. Uh, that that's an angle I've I've never heard of before. Is the 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 Arab element coming in to assist the Bosnians? But I guess it makes sense because they're they're both they share the Islamic faith. So well, there's a there's a doctor uh, Nafiz Assad uh, out of England. He's um, he did a lot of research into it. And yeah, like we had reports coming up of. Uh, elements of uh, Operation Cavalier, which was a Canadian op in Bosnia. We were Operation, uh, oh, it was some silly ass name. It's not coming, what were we? <laughs> Harmony, Operation Harmony. <laughs> sounds, sounds nice and peaceful. Yeah, so um, yeah, we would have reports coming up uh, of things like that. And then of course you had you know, sort of generally the Russian uh, bloc backing the Serbs. You had the, the Western bloc providing uh, uh, weapons and intelligence to the Croatian forces. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was quite the mix. You know, now that you mentioned it, the, like the Islamic world does sort of defend their own, I guess, when there's these military conflicts happening. I was talking to Jody Middick just a couple weeks ago. He was a sniper in Afghanistan, and he was saying that when they were on Operation Medusa, there were Chechen fighters coming in to, uh, to assist. And also with, uh, with my brother who fought against ISIS, you know, there was also uh, Chechen fighters and you know, Islamic fighters from around the world going into Syria and Iraq to join those forces. So what you're talking about sort of definitely uh, resonates and makes sense. It's also interesting that, like you said, in the West, we're, we're fed the narrative that the Serbs are the bad people. And mm. I think that was definitely reinforced during the Kosovo air campaign that happened well, a few years after, after you were there in the late 90s. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It was used. Yeah, that narrative was used. And I mean, you know, again, you had a bunch of stuff going on there behind the scenes because I interviewed um, – uh, McKenzie, Lewis McKenzie on a number of occasions. Right. So um, he was a, like, he went in in 92 and opened the Sarajevo airport, became famous for it. But he was back there in 99 during the Kosovo bombing. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you recall this, but that was kicked off really the, the, the bombing by something called the Ratchak Massacre. Yeah, I don't remember that. Well, okay, so it was this one village, you know, like the thing had been simmering all winter. And then all of a sudden, the, the Western press is full of the scenes from a village with these slaughtered people in a ditch. And that's when Bill Clinton picked up the phone to NATO headquarters and the bombing began. Um, so it was the OECD who, who discovered this massacre, yeah? Right. Uh, where our, our finance minister is headed to. Yes, um, yeah, apparently. Yes. So the thing is, though, and it, the, his name was William, I'd have to check, his name was William something, but the head of the OECD at the time, who, who brought in the cameras and showed them this massacre, and since then, you know, like, uh, these, these people that were in the ditch were apparently killed in a battle a day before, dressed in civilian clothes and dumped there. 
Right. The guy in charge of the whole operation, the head of the OECD in Europe, William, doesn't uh, come to me. Lewis McKenzie has told me on, on several occasions, he's confirmed that he met that man back in the 1980s, mid-1980s, when he was part of the United Nations uh, Honduras-El Salvador border supervision team, right, during the, the Contra thing. Mm-hmm. Only at that time, that man worked for the Central Intelligence Agency, and his specialty was organizing insurgent groups like the Contras. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So the whole the whole Balkan area, there were a lot of people playing a lot of games. Yeah, it, that that's not surprising at all. And y- you see history sort of repeating itself. I mean, with these dubious reasons for for engaging. I mean, you, you can look at Libya as another example, I think. Oh, sure. Yeah. But Serbia's definitely got the, uh, uh, well, I mean, it, it seems that they were definitely made out to be the bad guys when in fact it, and, and they were, they were, it's not, it's not that they were innocent. I mean, the, there is bad people on no. all sides, right? No, I'm not saying that at all, but I mean, I think Yugoslavia was really ground zero for the normalization of the idea of the uh, R2P concept, the right to protect, that we have the right to go into foreign nations and do violence because we deem that some group, right? And of course, we've seen that used in Libya. So they they normalize the idea with using Yugoslavia, right? Because we went in with the United Nations for years and years, and it just was still a, you know, it was still a problem. Yeah. And then they brought in NATO and all of a sudden, oh, the problem goes away. Right. And and you're conditioning the people that somehow, because the thing is the, the civil war in, in inside Bosnia, now there may have been backing by the other States, but it, it was a civil war internally. So how the hell did we get from there to bombing uh, Belgrade? Yeah. And if we're bombing Belgrade, why aren't we bombing Zagreb? I think, I think, unfortunately, in a lot of ways, the Yugoslav conflict was used to forward, to get us to a place like Libya, where, yeah, they can just yeah. go take a country out. Or sort of like set the stage for, uh, for future foreign adventures, I guess you could say. Exactly, exactly. Because they could point to us as being the failure of a UN peacekeeping model, which, you know, like, I mean, the military part of the UN at least when I was there, was kind of holding its own, but the political part of the UN wasn't doing a goddamn thing. They were soaking up uh, hotel rooms in the capital cities, drinking lots of booze all night, not doing much else. Yeah, and and that's that's interesting because the 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 political nature of the UN really seems to have uh, tied your hands behind your back for the military people that were on the ground because there was... And maybe maybe you could talk to this about some of the the rules of engagement that you had because from what I what I've heard talking to other veterans from that mission is that you know you couldn't uh, you couldn't walk with your rifle loaded and you couldn't uh, like you couldn't patrol like a a village uh, with your rifle loaded because that would be seen to be aggressive. Well, we certainly we we certainly never had any restriction like that that I encountered. I did. I mean, there were. Uh, uh, now, I was with the 2nd Battalion, PPCLI there, so good luck telling those boys to get their guns down. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
But uh, there was an Nigerian battalion, like, okay, when we got into the fight at Maydak, we moved from what they called Sector West up near Zagreb uh, down to Sector South. Or, no, 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 Sector South was somehow up near Zagreb, and Sector West was down south where Maydak was, because it's the UN. Yeah. Um, so there was a Nigerian battalion that, was, that controlled this area before we got there. So the Serbs didn't like these guys, and there, you know, probably some racism there, yeah. deep Eastern Europe. The Nigerian troops, these guys are not professional-grade soldiers. They're used to, you know, collecting taxes off the villagers back home. So the Serbs told them to stop carrying guns, and they did. Then the Serbs told them to stop wearing uniforms, and they did. Wow. <laughs> so when we got there, we entered this Serbian town like Kinin, the big city, and uh, you saw a couple of these really badly built abandoned uh, sandbag checkpoints, and uh, in the middle of town, you just see these random black fellows walking around in, yeah. you know, civilian attire. <laughs> yeah. It's... So there, was, there certainly were instances of that. Yeah, maybe, um, maybe that was that was mostly from my discussion with uh, Scott Casey, who uh, I think he was with the he was with the RCR, I believe. Okay. Uh, so may and I think that might have been before, and then so maybe maybe the could been, yeah, that could have been the other operation too, right? There were two distinct operations. Harmony was centered out of Croatia. Cavalier was centered out of Bosnia. Right, that's possible. What I found really interesting, like just just like moving uh, closer to what happened at Medak Pocket, but just a bit before that, when you guys rolled into into the country, one of the parts of the article that I really found interesting was, uh, well, you're writing about how there's a lot of like joking around and some braggadocious uh, uh, banter, and then all of a sudden you come to the first village that's uh, that's burnt down, and the entire mindset changed and. And there's uh, suddenly you just hear all the zippers on uh, the bags. Oh, sure. You yeah. guys uh, getting your guns ready. Is that when you sort of knew that you were getting into the shit with this? I think the emotional reality, especially for very young men, right? We're not terribly, say, emotionally aware or whatever, I suppose. You know what I mean? But that, yeah, the, the hard reality of it, there was just uh, a moment in the back of that truck where this bunch of young kids were just, you know, yapping off and, and, and it was the, whatever had happened there, it happened fairly recently. So this, this, these blood stains down the wall are still fresh. Yeah. And yeah, the, the height of them, it was just so fucking obvious that this had been a family lined up and shot that it really, you know, it just, it jackhammered you into reality that, you know, okay, I'm I'm actually here, and there are actually people dying around here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, so. and people of all ages. I mean, there was children. Uh, you you could tell from the the marks on the wall that uh, I think you write, but there was obviously child, young children, uh, of all ages. So I'd imagine that would have mm -hmm. been a very, uh, I don't know, surreal sort of eye opening moment that this is uh, this is real. Sure. Yeah. And it was, it was very, you know, like medieval, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I grew up in the seventies and eighties, mostly in the eighties. Right. So yeah, the idea that a central European country could come apart to this degree, you know, and, and yeah, like we encountered, 
there was one town called uh, Pakrak. And so before the war, it had been half Croatian, half Serbian. So the Croatians had driven the Serbs out and then flattened that side of the city. So, right, you'd be driving along normal streets, street lights, and then all of a sudden be no street lights and all the houses would be burned. And they had turned the local uh, uh, community center into some sort of torture center. So they had a woodworking shop in there with, you know, a big woodworking vice where they'd apparently taken and put people's heads in this and, and killed them by closing it. And so none of this had been going on for a couple of months when we arrived. But when we searched that building, the, the blood beneath this was so thick that there was still parts that were somewhat wet. You know what I mean? Like that's the level of just absolute hatred. And I mean, I've written, you know, when I look around the society right now here in North America, you know, like I've written a couple articles on that is, you know, like this is, this is how you get there, right? Because they got there because their, their governments and their media were telling them the other guys screwing them and has always screwed them and blah, 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 you know? Yeah. And, and it can happen fast, can't it? Because huh. Sir, Sarajevo <laughs> was the, that was the host of the Winter Olympics in 84. And then less than 10 years later, you, you've got medieval torture chambers and ethnic cleansing. Like it's, it's fascinating how fast things can just fall apart. Well, people should be taking that lesson here in North America and Europe right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And well, I think you just have to look at history and, uh, and, and see it that sure. it's possible. Sure. But that, but we don't, we don't really do a good job in this country of, of teaching history. Well, not anymore. Not no. anymore. I mean, you've got a, you've got a hard scale ideological, sect in the schools nowadays and they are yeah teaching a very specific ideological bent and that's that's dangerous because yeah that's how it starts it's that's what they were taught in their goddamn schools and they believed it yeah and sure. they went out and murdered their neighbor over yeah and it and it happens i think it happens like slowly imperceptibly at first and then just all of a sudden you're off the cliff well exactly yeah Exactly, exactly. It does. I mean, if we use the example of our own society here, you know, five, six, seven years ago, you started vaguely hearing about privilege and about, you know, and this sort of thing. And then it was, you know, and then all of a sudden now it's, it's, yeah, the volume's at a hundred. So yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, it's a traceable event in any society and you can, you can definitely see where it happens. Yeah. It, it must just, it must make you like, it must, it must do something to you that you you've seen where where this can all lead to and oh yeah it terrifies me for and sure. it's like and nobody but like hardly anybody's listening either because they because it sort of seems almost unbelievable at the same time but it must just drive you nuts well i mean i think people their eyes are starting to open i mean it was driving me completely nuts maybe two three years ago when you know, I don't think a lot of people saw where this was headed. So I, you know, the wife was ready to throw me in the basement because I would just <laughs> go on about this stuff. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's coming to the surface now that, oh, Jesus, this isn't a good idea. Yeah. But, yeah, we, we really, I mean, we need to go into Canadian schools right now and, and get a grip on these uh, teachers' unions because some of the crap that they're spilling out is very dangerous. It's incredibly dangerous. 
Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm not going to comment on why they would be doing it, but they just need to stop. Yeah. Well, there, there's definitely some lessons to be learned there. Mm-hmm. And so, so let's get to the Medak pocket. You're, you've been in, in country for, for a while. You get transferred to this uh, thing called the Medak pocket. And uh, before this, before this discussion, I actually, I went on uh, Google and just researched what, what exactly a pocket is in military sure. uh, language. And it's uh, so Wikipedia tells me that it's a, an enemy salient or like a bulge in the line that's been sort of cut off from its logistical uh, supply network. Yep. And, and it's very easy to, once you have a, a pocket, it's very easy to annihilate the forces inside of it because they can't resupply and they're sort of cut off. And that's exactly where you guys were sent to. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. The, the first part of the tour was, was actually fairly boring really because we we're up near Zagreb. And so, yeah, there, there wasn't much action. Then we got, we got shipped down to the South and uh, you know, all of a sudden we were in a very active area. And then uh, I guess about September 10th, I think, the uh, Croatians pulled this massive uh, offensive all along the line. And it just lit up. Uh, when the thing started, me and uh, my section, I was with 3-2 uh, Bravo. So uh, a guy named Rod Deering was our uh, section commander. And uh, we were on top of a mountain. We had been setting up an OP on top of this mountain. And we sat this night. We just watched this city called Gospic just gets just hammered just unreal like mortars 120 130 millimeter shells going off look like strobes just all night um so then yeah first thing in the morning we get orders to move forward and that we're going to be occupying blocking positions in front of the croatian forces and uh my uh section commander there so uh in the infantry they call their orders morning prayers which, you know, always struck me as a little, <laughs> a little mod, but so uh, normally it's a very structured thing, situation, enemy, situation, friendly, uh, mission and execution, command and SIGs, blah, blah, and it's very, so when he gave us our, our morning briefing for this, he just, uh, all he said was, well, I hope your sysips paid up because basically we're going to dig in and announce that our intentions are suicidal. <laughs> wow. We're all like, wow, that sounds like a lot of fun. So, uh, yeah. So, um, yeah. And, and on, so, so you guess. guys, you, and you guys were protecting the, uh, was it the, the Ser- so you're protecting Serbian uh, civilians in that pocket? Yeah, this was an area, the Leary Valley, it's called the Kraina, which uh, in their language means place of tears, which again struck me as, you know, maybe you just shouldn't have a place called place of tears. You yeah. Know, maybe. <laughs> uh, um, so yeah, so basically this is a, it was a, an ethnic Serbian sort of salient along the Bosnian border that the Croatians just wanted to wipe off the map. And they they did end up wiping it off the map in 1995 over 750,000 civilians were forced to flee. Right. Um, so these are the people. So yeah, like as we're going forward, um, you know, we have literally people streaming the other way from these villages and you can see the, the smoke on the horizon kind of thing. 
And uh, yeah, it was a very, it was kind of a sketchy, because we're like, okay, well, that's nice. And I mean, for my platoon, it's a forward air control, right? So I'm going, okay, so where's our air support? Like, should I start laying on an air support plan? Oh, no, 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 air support, no. I mean, we're trying to get our heads around, how the hell are we going to, because we're being told that we're going to dig in, and as soon as they come at us, we're going to engage them, and we're going to stop them. And it's just like, okay, well, we don't have any tanks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we're outnumbered like 10 to 1. So how exactly do you expect us to do that? <laughs> right. What, what was the largest, uh, like, what was the weaponry that you guys had? Because you didn't have tanks. What did you bring into the field with you? Uh, at the platoon level, the biggest thing you would have would be the 50 cals on the carriers. Um, so that's, you're up in an exposed position, you know, whale, like Audie fucking Murphy whaling on a 50 cal. Um, uh, they had put on, oh God, it was hilarious. I don't know if you know what an M113 is, those old piece of shit, flat square, built yeah. out of magnesium, by the way. Right. Because in 1958, when they designed them, that's the only metal that their engine could pull. So, yeah. you know, just as a helpful hint for your listeners, they also build road flares out of magnesium. So, um, so they had, had went out and bought these sort of a, if you can imagine like an egg cup that they then welded over the open turret of the M113 and then put a big heavy shield on the machine gun. So this was supposed to protect you. The yeah. problem was if you tried to, to unlock the turret when the vehicle was moving at all, you would just start spinning around in a huge circle because of the weight. There's wow. no, you know, like there's no servo assist in the, the turret. It's normally just a guy wailing it around. Yeah. So yeah, it was real. It was real. <laughs> yeah. Um, but when the did biggest the, uh... Uh, thing the battalion had would have been tow under armor. Okay. So that's a tow three missile fired off a uh, M113 carrier with a turret on it. We yeah. could hit shit out to about 7.5K, and we put those to good use. So you, you, could, you could potentially knock out an enemy uh, tank or piece of armor with that? Sure, or, or a firing position or a building they're firing from. They're, they're pretty accurate missiles for sure. So, but that was the biggest thing we had. It almost seems like you guys were definitely expecting to get some some incoming from the croats in in the medak pocket uh or are you, you suspected that something that there could have been a fight uh whereas well, when you we ordered from the orders we got we were told to prepare to engage them that we would that we would be engaging them so for whatever reason yeah the, the battle group commanders believe they would uh, fire on us when did the shooting start we arrived on an active battlefront so you had uh you had the serbs dug in um but it was they had a few troops from uh outside but it was mostly just the local villagers and then you had uh, a very large heavily armed croatian army rolling down on them so we we arrived i guess uh, about 9 a.m on the uh, 15th we uh, pulled into, uh, me personally, our, my platoon pulled into a town called uh, Sitaluk. Uh, we christened it Shitty Luck. Um, so as I pulled in, I always remember as I'm pulling into this village toward the edge of it, 
I see a bunch of these serves run by all doubled over, and I'm like, okay, all right, here we go. And you could hear the bullets, you know, the random rounds snapping by. Um, so we pulled in right away, an engineering digger came in and dug a scrape for our carriers, and we all drove in them. Um, so they were firing at each other mostly, which was kind of across our frontage till about, I think it was about 10, 30, 11, because we were kind of thinking lunch was in a bit. So I was standing around with uh, Rob Deans and uh, Guy Simmons and uh, somebody else. We're just literally standing in a little circle beside a barn having a smoke and, you know, fucking yapping off. And all of a sudden, the sound changed massively. Instead of the sound of shit going across you, which, you know, we got so used to, you really didn't pay attention. All of a sudden, it was snap, snap, snap. And there was a, a pile of wood up on the side of this barn, like a cord of wood. And so pieces of the cord just start exploding as they're hit by these 7.54, yeah? So <laughs> just for a second, we're all like... <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah so then we we headed up to our our fighting holes and uh like me personally like i i, I said to the one guy I said okay well we better we better move up so we we ran up and we had to run i had to run behind my carrier and then into a little fighting scrape and we just had these little fighting scrapes not a full hole or anything right and as I'm going by, one of the machine gunners, no names, no pack drill, who didn't like carrying his machine gun around, is literally sitting on the back combat door of the carrier reading a hustler. <laughs> like a, a porn man. Does he not know what's going internet, on? Right? Well, he had just been sitting there reading this when the shit hit the fan. <laughs> so he's literally looking up at me and just kind of like, Ugh! <laughs> And, uh... Yeah, so we got our little fighting scrapes, and then uh, they started hitting my section position with a 30 millimeter. And uh, wow, that was an impressive to kick, right? And uh, so at first they were on for line, and the, the thing was impacting about five feet behind me. Like it, it would have hit the carrier, but it was just hitting to the side. Right. And, of course, all these carriers are just packed to the roof with fucking ammunition. So if it hits this thing, that's it. Oh, yeah, it's going to be, like, megatonic there. Yeah. So, I, you know, I'm just, like, I'm literally just curled up watching this and going, fuck, fuck, fuckity, fuck. And uh, then he gets on for line, but he's a bit high. So he starts hitting this big oak tree just behind the carrier, and his big limbs are falling off it. And then, yeah, I just, all of a sudden, I hear this shitty little Mattel squeaky spring sound of an M16 outgoing. And uh, my section commander just started yelling, screaming fire orders at everybody, you know, like, blah, 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 to your front, engage, engage, fire them. (laughs) And, yeah, we just started, uh, then it was on after that. uh, But, yeah, getting everybody past that initial point, it was really him. Like, he just got up on the berm and started wailing back at It was a pretty heavy infantry engagement. Yeah, yeah. And how how far away would they have been? What was his distance uh, separating your lines? Oh, uh, some some of them were within about uh, 75 to 100 meters. Like, what it was, and it was kind of of weird for me because my father actually fought World War II. 
So he had fought in France and he had told me about these fucking hedgerows and that, you know, all these farms, they, they section off the field with these fucking hedgerows. And sure as shit, I've got hedgerows about 100 feet in front of me with these fucking guys firing from them. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so some parts of them, now they weren't, thing is with them, they weren't very uh, disciplined and organized. They had no fire discipline. They bunched up like bastards. So basically that night, what Deering did is he sectioned us into three groups, and we had sort of four or five kind of main little, at night when they'd start firing, you could see them, yeah? Yeah. So he just assigned each group to one of these, you know, when, like, it would be kind of, because we, we can't we can initiate right? We got to yeah. respond. So it, it seemed like some, one of these groups, they'd get enough, get enough rakia into them that somebody would get brave and just start wailing in our direction. And then the rest of them would join in. There didn't seem to be any, any more organization than that really. Yeah. So yeah, he just, when this would start happening, he detail each of the little sections he cut us into. Okay. You take that, little group you take this group you take this group and you would just sit there and just try and snipe them off yeah right? you can see their muzzle flash so up an inch back a couple of feet and <laughs> so yeah. we managed to whittle them down by morning uh that one right it's uh in 75 yards like that that's not that far that's, that's close enough to uh you, you can see what the guy looks like at that at that distance Oh, absolutely. There was, uh, yeah, one guy I hit. He was quite close. I don't know exactly. About 100 feet, I suppose. And uh, uh, I, I hit him because I could see his, I could literally see the dust being kicked up by his flash eliminator every time he fired at me. So I yeah. just, I used that to fix him. Um, but yeah, no, it was, it was quite close quarters. Right, right. There's estimates that about uh, 30 Croats were were killed in that battle. It, does that sound accurate to you? Yeah, I, I mean, I suppose we we definitely uh, we definitely hit quite a few people. So yeah, I mean, I I guess I don't know. I'll leave that to the the Croatian government. But it was actually militarily, it was a bit to our advantage that we did engage that closely, because again, we don't have any indirect fire weapons. They do, right? Right now, they don't have air because of the NATO you know, the NATO, uh, but, uh, yeah, they definitely had artillery and mortars. They mortared us a few times. So I think what prevented them actually from bringing in, uh, a lot of their more heavy artillery was the fact that we were so close to their troops. And in fact, at the platoon level, the, you know, uh, there was talk that if they tried to pull back from us, we're going to glom on and follow them because that was our thought. If they can put distance, they'll pound us to bits with heavy artillery. Yeah. Right. Right. And of course that's something that you guys didn't have. So that, that would make sense. Mm -hmm. G given the intensity of the battle, it's, it's uh, remarkable that, um, that there was no Canadians killed. I mean, there were Canadians wounded in the battle, but mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's, it's what, what do you think accounts for that? It was just like the superior training that you had or, or luck, or who knows? Well, yeah, I guess the god of, of children and drunks was watching over us. Um, I mean, a lot of it was we had, 
well, there was a culture certainly in the second battalion um, of being heavily over prepared for everything. Yeah. So I think one of the things that accounts for it for sure was the fact that as soon as we pulled into this location, we dug the fuck in. There was no fucking around. Like within five tenths of us getting there, we already had engineer guys scraping into the the carriage because for sure that thirty mil would have would have hit that carrier square if it wasn't buried, um, and they would have wiped us. I mean, there was nowhere to go in that farmyard. Um, a lot of luck. I mean, we had one one guy. We had left him down at an intersection to, to, you know, stop traffic or whatever. And, yeah, like, we could see this this RPK machine gun just wailing where he was. And all of a sudden, he went down like you just see him go down. And they just wailed the hell out of the area. We totally thought he was hit. We thought he was down. And we were engaging to our front. And then all of a sudden, we you know, you could hear behind you some dude yelling, Cover me! And he just, he did like 200 meters in about two seconds fucking flat. Wow. <laughs> so there was a lot of blind dumb luck. I mean, whatever it was, I'm happy we didn't lose more, for sure. Yeah, I can only imagine that's uh, some intense shit going on. It's, after the after the dust settled and, uh, well, after the mission was over, really, it, it took, uh, I think in 2002, Governor General Adrian Clarkson actually publicly gave some kind of commendation to the second battalion, but, but that was like 10 years later. What, yeah. what do you think accounts for like this? Like I, I have my own idea about why the Medak pocket was sort of like covered up. And I, I think it's because it sort of flew in the face of the, the official narrative that Canadian soldiers are peacekeepers and, and they don't really do the, the hard fighting. What, what do you think accounts for? It's mostly down to one man, from what we understand. Uh, there was a man named David Fowler. He was the Associate Minister of Defense. So this is the senior bureaucrat over at DOD. Um, he was in the process of, of breaking his ass to try and cover up the Somalia thing. And the real cover up there, which is just starting to come, up now, come out now, was the fact that they... Uh, pump these guys up on mefloquine a completely untested drug and that uh, more and more we're learning that that at least accounts for some of the issues that were were happening there so so just to be clear that that's like a an anti-malarial drug is it it's an anti-malarial but it it uh it causes uh damage to the brain to some of the centers of the brain they're finding now and uh, you know when they gave it to them back in 92 completely untested blah 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 now that being said i mean you know the airborne at that time it was you know if you had a real disciplined hard case crazy prick in the battalion uh well he'd be he'd fit right in the airborne let's send him over there yeah um but yeah, but, but, he's but, in the process of covering that up. So from what we understand, he just did not want anything about Canadian soldiers killing anyone. So he ordered this shut down. He ordered uh, documents shredded. It, it, really, it was it was mostly this one individual that, that did that. And he was a, uh, the individual who manage the uh, Somali inquiry for the liberal government of Chrétien. 
Um, interesting side note, karma can be a bit of a motherfucker. So Dave Fowler, for all his good work being a bag man, was rewarded by becoming a, a Canadian ambassador in Central Africa. So he was enjoying being his, doing some ambassador shit down there, driving around, when he got jumped by Al-Qaeda. Really? They held him for eight months. Yes. Okay. I do remember that. Yeah. And when he, when they let him go, they had him in the parliament there, you know, to, oh, welcome him back. And when I saw that piteous, broken human stand up, I was like, oh, yeah, you got your sweet pea. Because, yeah, no doubt. There are a lot of guys that died from suicide and drug addiction and every other fucking thing because they couldn't get any help for anything because what happened to us never happened. Exactly. Exactly. That's one of my friends who I've had on the podcast, uh, Captain Robert Semrau. He, he referred to the mission as uh, a PTSD incubator because it's you, you, when you can't talk about your experiences, then, like you said, uh, depression's going to go up, suicide's going to go up. Uh, oh, yeah, no, it wasn't just that. Like, they did such a good job at first that, you know, like, because the Canadian Forces, it's a small organization, especially back then. And, you know, you'd be at a mess or something, some base, and, and you'd discuss this. And, yeah, people would, to your face, call you a liar. Wow. Right? You're full of fucking shit. That didn't happen. Right? Yeah. And, of course, there's no... And it was easy for people to believe it never happened because, you know, sure, we would have heard about that. We would have seen, you know, documents, yada, yada, yada. So, yeah, I mean, I've always maintained that, uh, like, I get a pension for PTSD, and I've always maintained that it was probably mostly the cover-up that did that, not the actual experience. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, the, mm. government, the government would never lie to us and cover something up, right? Good Lord, right? Good Lord. Man, oh man, yeah, yeah. Like I, I think that the, uh, yeah, it must have just been like a really terrible thing for morale and just your people's mental health to, to sort of like it's one thing to risk your life for your country, you know, and you know that the country's got your back. But if you're doing that and the country doesn't even know they don't have your back, they think you're a liar. Uh, that's just that's got to be really tough. Well, sure. And I mean, you know, like you, you say that, uh, you know, we didn't, uh, we didn't lose anybody there and no, we didn't, we didn't lose anybody to the actions of the enemy. But, uh, from what I understand, just in my company, there's something like 30, 30 people that have committed suicide over the course of the last 25 years. And many of them in, in sort of the first 10 years or so, because yeah, like, uh, yeah, yeah. How the fuck do you deal with that? <laughs> yeah. And, and I know for a fact that, uh, that your company is not the only one that, that has those, uh, kind of statistics. It's, uh, sure. yeah. Sure. It's, it's and it's, it's sad that they didn't learn those lessons for Afghanistan. Yeah. You think they would? Yeah, no. Well, you know, all they did is they, uh, yeah, they spent a bunch of money, a bunch of uh, a bunch of different psychiatrists and social workers got money rained on them, and that's about all that happened. Yeah, I, I was just thinking just to just before we wrap things up here, I was thinking that uh, if this was an American story instead of a Canadian one, there there would be like books written about it, movies, uh, Hollywood would be involved. 
it's it's a real shame that I, I think this is such an important moment in Canadian history and, and for the soldiers who were there that it, it should really be remembered well there was there had been in Alberta now there was one book written on it I threatened to sue the author uh, Carol off what, what was the book called uh, ghosts of the Madak pocket I don't even think it's okay. in print anymore but it was yeah it was just a, kind of slanderous toward me in some regards oh. but uh yeah it was not at all an accurate portrait of anything that happened and i don't think there has the the closest thing i've seen is the history channel did do uh, a little program on it yeah and uh, they actually talked to rod deering and uh, rob beans i think from my section right on um i think that's a pretty good overall general look at it yeah there's not but beyond that there's not a lot out there and it's uh no, I know uh, Scott Casey from BC. He's got a, a pretty good book called. I really like it. It's called Ghost Keepers. Uh, oh, I don't think I've seen that. Yeah, you'd, you'd probably like it. It's not about the Medak pocket, but it's about uh, you know he was there in general. Uh, now, what was your your brother there? He fought. Now, who did he fight with? So, so my brother Dylan. He uh, he was in the second battalion as well. He was. Ah. Uh, he went to Afghanistan. What sort of after combat operations had had died down, but then after that he got out of the army. Uh, he did he did some work up in the Alberta oil sands, and then in 2014, right when ISIS was sort of making its mark in Syria and and had captured Mosul, my brother he he sold all of his possessions, sold his car, bought a one way ticket. He joined the Kurds in northern Iraq. Ah, okay. okay. As a volunteer, and so. Yeah, he, he was fighting with the Kurds against ISIS in uh, 2014. I'll take a look at his book there for sure. Yeah, it's called One Soldier. But anyways, with, with all, that, all that being said, I, I'm really I'm thankful that you actually took the time to, to write about your experiences, even though it's uh, sort of just a snapshot in time, because it really gives people a sense of what was going on. And I just wish there was more of it. Well, I mean, uh, I know there's one fella, uh, he's still in the military, so he calls himself Corporal Bloggins, uh, but he, uh, he's, he's looking for a publisher right now on a, on a fairly extensive book on it. Right on. He was in, uh, I think, D Company, one of the other companies. Um, I'll, uh, I'll try and find a link and send it to you on uh, social media. Yeah, right on, man. And then uh, when the time comes, I can post it on the podcast website as well. Hey, William, thanks a lot for, for making the time to be here. Really appreciate it. I think this was a, a great discussion. So, so thanks for everything you've done. Well, thank you for your interest, sir. You have a great day. And that concludes my talk with William Ray, Canadian veteran of Yugoslavia and the battle at the Medak Pocket. There are some lessons to be learned from this mission and from the men who were there that I think we would all be wise to heed. And the first, the obvious. Always question your government, because they will lie to you. Think about this. If a battle of the magnitude of Madak Pocket can be hushed up and covered up to the point where even the men who were there are called liars for speaking about it, then what else is the government not telling us about? What other straight-up lies are being told by the people in charge? Lesson number two. Beware how quickly things fall apart. Consider this. In 1984, the Winter Olympics were held in Sarajevo, 
the capital of Bosnia. And less than 10 years later, that same city was the epicenter of ethnic cleansing and civil war. And here's the thing. If you were a tourist visiting Sarajevo during those Olympic Games in 1984, or perhaps you're just somebody living there, and you were to say that in eight years' time, there's going to be mass graves and summary executions and villages destroyed and cities bombed out and hundreds of thousands of people killed and displaced, well, you would have been laughed at. You would have been called crazy. It couldn't happen here. It couldn't happen there. But it did happen. And the point is, is that history moves very slowly for 99% of the time. Imperceptibly slow. And then it moves really, really fast and suddenly you're off the cliff. And this process whereby society completely disintegrates is linked to the first lesson that the government will lie to you. Look at any genocide in recent memory, whether it's Rwanda or what we learned about in Yugoslavia, and you're going to see that the precursor to violence is always a steady, constant, never-ending barrage of negative information that is intended to make you scared of your neighbors and not think for yourself. Haven't we also been subjected to a constant and unceasing barrage of messages meant to make us fearful? during this past five months? Well, you can think about that as you adjust your face mask. Okay, so we're at the point in the podcast now where I'm going to ask you to help me out. If you like the episode, please rank it and leave a review wherever you get your podcast from. Hey, another way you can help me out is to buy my book, One Soldier, A Canadian Soldier's Fight Against the Islamic State and the Ponds of War. And the links are available on the website. If you have any comments or you want to share some episode ideas, then I'd love to hear from you. Get a hold of me through Facebook or Twitter. Um, Let me know what you think. Let me know what you want to see. And finally, I'm going to dedicate this episode to the veterans of Canada's peacekeeping mission to Yugoslavia. The veterans of the Medak Pocket. That's it. That's all. Out. Out.